Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. This season is sponsored by our community partner, Summit Sensory Gym. Have you ever wondered if there's a way to amplify a child's therapy experience? Well, Summit Sensory Gym is the answer you were looking for. Summit Sensory Integration Therapy Gyms have been shown to be an invaluable tool for parents and therapy providers looking to give their children the best possible care. The benefits of Sensory Integration Therapy Gyms are numerous. They provide a safe and stimulating environment for children to explore and develop their motor, language, and social skills in a fun and engaging way. Through this type of therapeutic play, children can learn how to better regulate their emotions and respond to different sensory stimuli. Visit summitsensory.com to learn more and schedule your free design consult. I'm happy to be joined today um, by one of STARS board members, Holly Healy. Um, Holly, thank you for being here. I would wonder if you'd introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Holly Healy, and I have been a board member for two years now. I'm also a family nurse practitioner, and I practice in um, pediatrics for the past 17 years. So I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think you could really help other family nurse practitioners, um, pediatricians who also are on the front lines of encountering people who are coming with concerning behaviors or um, some school reports that they can't make sense of. Um, So tell me a little bit about how you got connected with um, the STAR Institute. Sure, I'd love to. So when my oldest, who is now 11, was around four or five, we started to notice um, some behavioral differences with her and a lot of dysregulation. So, and it manifested in um, behavioral outburst and just really difficulty with sleep. And so we went to a counselor to try to figure it out because we kept saying, well, she's anxious, she's anxious. So the counselor handed me um, Lucy Jane Miller's book and my husband and I read it together and it was like a revelation. And, and we thought, this is her. This is this exactly explains, you know, what is going on. And so I read as much information as I could and we got her into OT. We started changing things at home and we didn't see a lot of progress at first. And so reading the book, I realized and going on the website I realized, oh, there are trained OTs by STAR that have gone through a mentorship program. So when we finally kept hitting several walls, you know, with our OT treatment, um, I drove her four miles to the closest OT who had been mentored by STAR and took her to Asheville, North Carolina. And we met with this amazing therapist. And the first thing she told me was, you know, we see things differently. We have a different lens in which we see children with sensory processing disorder, she took two hours and it changed our lives. And so from there, we launched into implementing a sensory diet every day. We got her into um, chiropractor, we got her into vision therapy, and then we also got her into horseback riding. So we learned that this wasn't just a, 
once a week, go to OT, you know, and it was more, this is, you know, this is part of like your life. This is how you need to change things daily. And, you know, it wasn't drastic. It was just small changes and how we would view, how does she need to start her day off? You know, it may not be what normal kids do to start their days. And so, um, I also got myself certified with, at the time it was called, um, integrated listening systems. They've changed now to unite. So I got myself certified and we got, we put her through the focus program that I did and got her started on the dream pad. So we just really implemented everything because we were honestly desperate to get her to a happy place. And, um, but also I just, I'm a big fan of just learning information and with her OT, I could never go back into the room. I didn't know what what they were doing and how I could help her. So with, with that particular visit, um, I stayed with them the whole time with this therapist that was trained by star. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this is fascinating. Cause I had so many questions that I could never really get answered. Cause the traditional treatment is I'm going to take your child back for an hour. I'll be back and I'll give you two minutes to let you know what we did. And then I'll see you next week. So it was it was transforming. And so I then implemented it more into my practice. And I started to see children differently that were coming in with struggles. And I started to just completely change my perspective on how to help parents um, from my own personal experience and then just educating myself. So that's why I wanted to be a board member too, just so I could help um, from my perspective as a parent and a professional help the, you know, the organization get, get the word out, you know, how can we make this, how can we make everybody more aware of how to, how to integrate it? Thank you for sharing that. A couple of um, things jumped out at me. One is um, I'm thinking it's Dr. Miller's book, Sensational Kids. Yes. The book. Uh Okay. So we'll put all of this in our um, show notes. So if you're listening and you're interested in reading this book, Sensational (laughs) Kids, Hope and help for children with sensory processing disorder. You know, that has been um, transformative for people who are otherwise unaware of sensory processing differences to read that book and and know that this is its own um, diagnostic category, right? It's not listed in the DSM right mm-hmm. now, the mm-hmm. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, it, we have had efforts to um, get sensory processing differences or disorder um, you know, classified as such, yet the science is telling us it truly exists. And one of the other things that you pointed out was that in that book, uh, Dr. Miller sh- shares um, the development of the STAR model. Mm-hmm. And the STAR model is a different approach to occupational therapy intervention for children with sensory processing differences. And one of the key features of our model is that it is fully relational and that all of our intervention includes one or both parents in every Mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. And then every fifth or sixth session is parents only. So it's parent education focused wherein we recognize that you're the expert in your child and we have a sensory lens and we could guide you um, to adapt your lifestyle to the new understanding of who your child is through that sensory lens. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened for you. Mm -hmm. This occupational therapist said, I'm going to put the sensory lens on 
tell you what I see about your daughter. And then um, here are some lifestyle changes that would support um, improved regulation um, in her system. And then you, as the expert, went out and resourced all of those things and implemented them with the support of a sensory um, trained occupational therapist. So I loved that. that Yeah. And she gave us, you know, some exercises to get started. And then I bought, I used this um, out of sync child has fun. It was, it has a bunch of activities in it. So what I did, and this might help parents, you know, it has some great information. I think I got the flashcards too at one of the symposiums, but every, every morning I would wake up early and I would just piece together. Okay. This is what I'm going to do today. Um, Cause my daughter's a, she's a heavy, you know, the heavy work. She always, you know, her OT would always say, give her the heavy work. So I'd put together, you know, some things that would give me about 15 minutes every day of you know, of activities for her to do so that she could start her day off right. So it's really just, you know, for parents, it's just taking the time to sit down, put together some activities, which I find fun because I'm active too. And then just making sure each morning that your, your child starts off, like getting their system regulated. It's like adults that need to take a run every morning, you know, before they can, you know, function. So it's, um, it was really great to, to realize this is a daily thing, not just once a week. Yeah. Right. And to recognize that as children, oftentimes um, we don't have the agency or even the knowledge to yes. know what our body needs. And mm-hmm. as adults, we do. And so we all have sensory processing differences um, and we all have designed our lifestyles to support them. Right. Um, and so I always share with parents like, you might wake up with music where your spouse wakes up with a blaring alarm, right? And those yes. are sensory differences because you figured yeah. out that this one is more supportive of your regulation to wake up. You may shower at night. Somebody else might shower in the morning. Like mm-hmm. your point, some people wake up at the ground and go for a run because that's what um, regulates their nervous system. And they find that supports them to have high levels of performance after um, right. at work or at school or whatever it is. And so we design our lives in a way that supports our sensory system. And so to then turn and apply that to your daughter, recognizing, oh, the heavy work activities, um, which are push, pull, climb, you know, closed chain uh, exercises like Mm -hmm. uh, wall squats or planks, those can be super supportive of regulating our nervous systems. And so you designed for that to increase her performance and then send her off to school probably. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. And it's great now that she's 11, we started this at five. So now she'll say like the other night, she just wasn't doing well. And so she said, can I have my weighted blanket and can we play my music? And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. Cause it took six years, you know, but with that is so much brain growth of, of that awareness. Like I know now what I need, you know, so or progressive relaxation, I'll do sometimes she loves it. Um, so she'll say, can you do that? And it's, you know, to a five or six year old, they're not going to really have that awareness to know what they need. So they're going to either act out or um, regress, but you know, some, someone like her at her age, they get to this like more awareness of like, I'm feeling this way. Therefore I can do this, you know? So I love that. It's such self-advocacy, right? Like a beautiful Mm. development of self-advocacy. I had a teen client one time and I said, what, you know, what brings you to the star? And she said, something has always been different about my system. Mm -hmm. And she was 
exceptionally bright um, at really high performing school and um, found knowledge to be really informed, like really helpful to her, like not just from a regulatory standpoint, but it was something that she actively sought out. So she went to the library and started researching about her own system, found Dr. Miller's book on sensational kids, Wow! read it, took it home to her parents and said, take me here. Oh, that is fantastic. Another self-advocacy story, right? Like, you know, she was able to recognize in herself the differences and then ask for, um, you know, a a sensory-based intervention. Tell me a little bit about this from a a family nurse practitioner standpoint, what are you seeing in your practice um, in terms of awareness around sensory processing differences or say some diagnoses that seem to overlap or maybe are misdiagnoses that Mm -hmm. are associated with sensory processing differences? Yeah, I'd love to speak to that. So, um, and you are right. What we typically put in as a diagnosis is I think it's sensory processing difficulty is what it ends up you know, so I, you're right. It's very hard sometimes because when I see that on a patient's chart, it's just makes me wonder, you know, kind of what we're, what we're dealing with. Cause oftentimes I'll see other diagnoses at the same time, like behavioral concerns or difficulty sleeping. So what has been most alarming to me over the past few years is, um, that I feel the overdiagnosis of ADHD and, it's really been hard because in every provider will, will definitely understand this. You get 10 minutes to see a patient. And within that 10 minutes, you can hear bits and pieces of what's going on, but you don't really get the whole picture. And so we have, of course, these very reputable and valid scales that we use for diagnosis. But I was doing some research and looking back through the Vanderbilt scale, which is what we use for ADHD diagnoses. And, you know, so many of the questions that are asked have everything to do with sensory. Um, and are oftentimes I grab um, Lucy J. Miller's book and I'm reading, what are some symptoms that we see with SPD? And then they literally coincide with so much of these questions on the Vanderbilt. And as a provider, you love your, you love your scales. You know, you love to say, oh, wonderful. She scored this then this, she has ADHD with a subtype of inattentiveness, you know, so we're going to go ahead. We're going to treat with this rather than saying, oh, I noticed you answered a lot of these questions that had to do with behavior. Can we, you know, can we talk more about that? Like, is there, do you notice a trend? Is it always in the mornings? Is it, you know, do you notice that it happens after they've been going to their gymnastics class for an hour? So it really, um, it's really been difficult for me to see how often kids are now just placed in this silo of this is your disorder. This is your treatment. Let's start you on medicine. Um, and I've taken an approach where I won't prescribe. I actually send them to an occupational therapist and I actually see them back several times before we even go down that Avenue. And I had a wonderful fourth grader who she was struggling, um, in one of her classes. And I, and the teacher had, you know, reached out and said, I think she has attention problems. And the mom was really open to me just seeing her for a while first before, um, going down that Avenue of medication. And it, I think it was our sixth visit. We did a lot of work together. She'd come in. I was able to get 20 minutes, um, with her. And I said, 
you know, about the fifth visit, I told the mom, I'd really love for her to get evaluated for her vision, her developmental vision, not can she see, is she 2020? Um, and they came back the next week and they said, oh my goodness, like it, she's having a really hard time with how she's, how her eyes are tracking and we're going to start therapy. And the teacher made a couple modifications and everything was drastically improved. And it just took, it took time. It just and I know it's hard for providers because time is just so hard right now with the way our healthcare is set up. But if you just take the time to look at the big picture of the child, you can see that it's not, we just look so much at the behavior, not what's behind it and, and how we can really, you know, help them. And so it's, it's something I struggle with um, because I, I do see it so often. It's, it's what are the symptoms? Here's my diagnosis and here's my treatment. It's all like A, B, and C, but these kids, kids are not, they're not black and white. They can, you can't go A, B, and C with kids. You have to really, really look at what is going on. Um, and I always observe, tell me what your day's like. How are the parents reacting? Are they regulated? That makes a big difference. So I, I kind of look at the whole holistic picture of what's going on, how much activity they get, what calms them, what makes them, you know, overstimulated um, so that I can really try my best to help the parents understand that it, it may not be just, just this diagnosis that we, you know, have you fill out and the, and the teachers fill out and, you know, we give it a number and we go with it. It's, it's so much more than that. So I've tried really hard to educate parents. I send them to the star website. I send them on to the books. And then I also talk a lot about um, what are some things they can change in their home? Like what can they buy? I have sensory swings in my house. We have a whole room set up with a trampoline and balls and balance boards and, you know, what are some small things they can do every day, um, to help, to help their child too. Yeah. I love that you brought up a couple things. One is diagnosis and then one is intervention based. Um, in terms of diagnosis, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of challenges with practitioners having the time. Um, you know, there's an article um, that we'll, we'll put in the, the notes as well um, that an occupational therapist actually wrote for nurse practitioners. Um, the author is Jessica Wood, and um, it was published in the Journal for Nurse Practitioners. And it was educating yourself about sensory processing differences in order to help families differentiate um, because we know that there's um, some studies say up to 11% of children ages four to 17 have ADHD. And then we have a prevalent study for sensory processing um, difficulties, which would suggest that five to 16% of children in the general population without any other um, diagnoses have sensory processing difficulties. Mm. And so if we visualize a Venn diagram, there is definitely overlap. Um, and potentially, um, you, if you do have a diagnosis of ADHD, you do have a likelihood of having some sensory processing features of that, right? And so about 40% of children with ADHD also have SPD, but it's really important um, for practitioners and for parents alike to recognize that while there is overlap in that Venn diagram, 
ADHD and SPD in brain studies are differentiated. They are different. They are their mm-hmm. own differences and disorders. And so one has a neuro uh, ADHD has a neurotransmitter basis. Um, and so a lot of times kids do react well, if they have truly have ADHD to, um, medication because it is changing the way their brain um, right. and neurotransmitters function. But if they have as you know, sensory processing difficulties or disorders, um, we, the brain studies are showing that there's actually a difference in their white matter. And so electrical impulses are not reaching, um, the portion of their brain that is responsible for sensory integration. And then there is the overlap, right? And so to take the time to tease it apart, to say, you know, maybe this is ADHD with a sensory processing, um, feature, mm-hmm. or maybe this is sensory processing difficulties on its own. And they actually do have in our society, um, a different treatment approach to each. Um, and so I understand that when sometimes people just want the diagnosis, right? <laughs> like right. Yeah. It, it feels like the easy thing to measure uh-huh. processing differences are not as easy to measure. And right. we leave the office with a diagnosis and a plan. Mm-hmm. And that for some people feels easier than it does to take the low, slow approach. Let's tease it apart. Um, we have some information that they might be struggling with some of the, you know, some of the things we captured on the Vanderbilt um, assessment scales, maybe mm-hmm. these could also very likely be contributed to the sensory processing differences. So what, maybe what scale could we add for sensory processing awareness? Could you visit an occupational therapist who's trying to sensory processing. Um, To your point, could you try the approaches, which are all natural, used in sensory processing intervention, which are the sensory-based bottom-up approaches? Mm -hmm. And if you find that those are helpful, that might be giving us more information to look more closely at the sensory processing features that you're describing. Um, Because if they're effective, it is likely that there's um, a sensory processing component um, to, uh, to this complex behavior, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And that's where the OT can, can be so helpful with that bottom up approach. Cause that's how they would approach this, you know, um, and really help the parents understand that, you know, some, that top-down approach just wasn't always the answer. And we need to help these kids understand that they they're still loved no matter what their behavior is. We have to, our job as providers, parents, practitioners to, to let them know that they're not different. They're not, there's nothing wrong with them. And I think, you know, to your point, that overlap of, of sensory processing ADD is, is really evident. So I love that you said that. And I, and I also see such an overlap with self-esteem and this diagnosis of ADHD And, you know, with that then comes perhaps an increased prevalence of depression among some of these kids, because then they realize I have a label, I have a diagnosis, I'm different. And, you know, my youngest was diagnosed with it in kindergarten and the teacher sat her by herself and just literally thought, this is, this is the way we're going to handle it. We're going to sit her by herself and then we're going to put her on a wiggle seat and then she's going to get her work done. And it was horrifying to see how it affected her self-esteem and all she wanted to do was sit with her friends and to a six-year-old, you know, 
how does that, how did she interpret being sitting, you know, being told she has to sit by herself. So it, I found a new school where she was, and she is currently accepted for, for who she is. And if she has to get up and move around, it's, it's welcomed. And she doesn't sit by herself. She sits with her friends and she's allowed to be more tactile, which is how she learns and she's doing amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's more, you know, let's meet them where they are to help them succeed no matter how diverse they are, you know? Yes. You know, and, and teachers again, are another, um, person who might be on the front line of this, right. Recognizing some behaviors. And so, um, we have a passionate star about educating, um, with a school-based approach, right. A Mm school-based focus, because again, like if teachers are given the sensory lens, they may look at the behavior and be like, Oh, this is interesting. Well, um, they are trying to manage 25 and 30 kids and they do need, um, you know, classroom management approaches. A lot of times the bottom up approach the sensory-based interventions can be used for multiple students at a time and increase regulation across the classroom, not just for um, the child that might need it. And I find that the children who need it oftentimes self-select into alternative seating options, um, mm-hmm. bands that are tied to the legs of their chairs, mm-hmm. um, the uh you know, headphones or earplugs for sensory over responsivity, um, being mindful of where they're sitting, um, so that they feel safe in their environment. Um, and so all of that is you were educated enough to advocate for your child. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a wonderful gift. Um, but hopefully some of this conversation would help somebody sitting at home listening, whether they're a parent, whether they're a teacher, whether they're a practitioner, to say, oh, what could we try? Like what approaches could um, increase success and decrease the likelihood of f- impact on m- the mental health, self-esteem right. of the child. I actually had a dad one day, I was sitting across from him and we know um, that there are hereditary components to both of these diagnoses, ADHD and sensory processing um, difficulties or disorders. Um, And whether that's, you know, it could also be pre and perinatal, right, as well. Mm -hmm. There are some Mm -hmm. studies around that. But he said, oh, that's what's going on. This is how I was when I was little. Like he made the connection. Oh, now I'm making the connection between what you're telling me and how I was as a little. And my teacher um, put me in a cardboard box. Oh, my goodness. So this is, you know, he's probably in his forties, but they realized his attention um, differences and their solution was to place an entire refrigerator box over his desk. Oh my goodness. Day. And I just, I got tears in my eyes. I just thought, talk about feeling othered yes. <laughs> in the context yeah. of the classroom. Like right. what would happen to your self-esteem if your teacher put you in a cardboard box every day? And, you know, I mean, the teacher was you know, asked to manage a classroom of multiple kids and thought that it would be helpful, right? You know, really thought right. it would help them. And there was something about it that allowed him to focus, but it wasn't the approach that would support, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know, healthy social emotional. Yes. Yes. Um, but you know, to all that to say, like um there are approaches that support um, a healthy reception 
of attention and sensory differences within the classroom that support integration, that support the children um, to develop healthy self-esteem in the context of their education, which they spend an enormous amount of time at school. And so how important for them um, to function well and to feel good about their contributions. And I love, I love, um, I love that story in a sense, because he was literally placed in a cardboard box, but figuratively, he was placed in a cardboard box. And a lot of these kids are just, I don't know if silo is the right word, but they're just placed separately. And it's just not the way we should be approaching it. And as accepting as we are now, as our society is becoming more accepting of diversity and embracing people for their gender, their, you know, their pronouns. I feel like this is another example of how we need to move towards embracing the diversity of, of people's sensory needs too. And so I've changed my language even at home. And even when I talk to patients and parents, I'll say, you know, I'll tell my kids, you know, I'm feeling, I'm not feeling centered. And I use that word a lot because I know it's kind of a yoga phrase since I practice, but, you know, I'll say, I'm, I'm going to go just onto my yoga mat for 10 minutes and I'll, I'll be back so that I can feel more present. So I've changed my, my verbiage and my vocabulary around my kids. So they know, um, they understand that that's important. And so I've found my youngest who's almost seven. She'll, I gave her one of my yoga mats and she'll, she'll disappear sometimes if she's getting upset over something and I'll find her up there doing yoga. Cause she's learned like, okay, I'm going to go like calm myself down and that's accepted. That's okay. So I'm hoping that with, with all this transformation of acceptance of diversity in our world, that we can see a sensory place in that too. Cause I think it's just so, you know, so important. No, no more cardboard boxes, you know, should be allowed. It should definitely be, um, you know, John's a little bit, he's getting out of his seat. Sounds like he needs to maybe go do some, a couple jumping jacks. I love using crab and down dog, you know, for kids. Like, I think he just needs to do a couple things then then come back. So it's just, you know, that awareness of that diversity too, I think is so important for teachers to, to see. I could see that yoga poses in particular would be something that would be really helpful um, to recenter and re-regulate um, children who might, you know, to your point, either need a little bit more movement or might need some proprioceptive, um, activation at their joints. And so you, um, have a specialty also in yoga and you utilize that specialty, um, at the preschool level. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I've practiced for 25 years myself and that's, that's my regulation personally. So I I practice every day and I know I'm, I know I love certain poses personally that help regulate me. So I teach at a wonderful preschool where the director is very well, well-versed in, in sensory processing. And so, um, I think I, if I, if she wanted, I'd be there every day, but I do go in and I teach two-year-olds up until pre-K transitional kindergarten yoga classes. And I, I always do sensory components into my class that they love. And so Um, there's some sort of texture that I bring in. So it might be like for my class on Monday, I cut my daughter's tutu up into these squares because there's a really beautiful texture. Um, and so I'll, I'll drape it over the kids, kind of fan them with it. So I bring in that we do the movement, um, a lot of down dog because kids love being upside down. 
Um, it's wonderful. Um, and I let them be free to move their body and figure out what they need because kids need different things. And, and I always close with them in what's called Shavasana, which is the, the pose that you, it's a resting pose at the end of class. And I do a spray. I have a beautiful room spray that's lemon flavored and they love it. They say, Oh, do you, did you bring the spray? And so they have this, they end with this beautiful scent. Um, and I take their legs and I, I kind of rock them side to side because I know that movement is also good. So I'm getting that kind of input for them of movement. And then I, I kind of rest their feet at a, I basically flex them out and then push them a little bit into the ground. So they get that grounding feeling at the end too. So I, I integrate it and I had this wonderful three-year-old, I think, who, um, I was just teaching the class and she was doing great. And she was, you know, I could tell she was, she would separate herself from the class. She kind of sat aside, but she participated the whole class and I didn't think anything of it. She, she loved it. So at the end of class, the teachers came up to me and they were in tears. They said, she never participates in anything. Um, in the classroom, she's really anxious. She's very cautious. She doesn't like the loud noises and all the, you know, some of the activities that involve a lot of things. She has a difficult time participating, but in this class, she was amazing. So they, they were so excited because they could go home and tell the mom, Hey, listen, you know, you know, your daughter did wonderful in yoga. Here's the things that she really loved. And, um, they were so excited because I think they were trying to help her. They didn't know what approach to take. So I told him, I said, well, integrate some movement when you start your class. And instead of coming in, sitting down and doing something, maybe move first and, you know, kind of go from there. So it was really, it was really great to see. I love that story. I, um, you know, in this conversation, we've talked a lot about uh, intervention approaches and how they differ based on diagnoses. And so we've also talked about, um, you know, neurodiversity um, in terms of uh, everybody's brain is different. Just like we have biodiversity, we have neurodiversity, mm-hmm. and um, we affirm that and respect that. And we're hoping to see that um, spread widely. Um, that there's an acceptance that every brain is beautiful, right? That that um, that we we come as we are. And so, all that to say, you know, um, ADHD is a real neurotransmitter difference in the brain, and we honor that. And the intervention approaches we have so far um, are medication and then some behavior management um, mm-hmm. techniques. And then sensory processing differences or difficulties disordered is itself um, also a real thing. Um, differences in the brain um, um, show us that through brain imaging and the treatment approach for that is the bottom-up approach, the sensory-based mm-hmm. approach. And what yoga is, is both. And so if you're listening and you do have a, you know, diagnosis of either or have an overlap, um, the, the yogic approach um, integrates bottom up and by bottom up, I mean that body sensation and movements are the entry point um, and the um, end result is self-regulation, um, um, hopefully to better performance in, in whatever you want to achieve. And by top down, we mean that it's um, cognitively or cortically um, originated, right? So we use mediated, I guess might be a good word. And we use cognition to um, focus our attention oftentimes, 
and it results in meaning making and understanding. And yoga is both, right? We have the movement of our body and our putting our body in different positions and then cueing to use our cognition to attend to, um, to our bodies and, and make meaning of it. And the result is um, self-regulation. So I love that as kind of maybe the wrap up of our conversation today, because Mm -hmm. it, it marries, um, who you are as a practitioner, um, and then your passion for, um, differentiating and, um, recognizing through a sensory lens that we can serve the people that come to us with some challenges, um, by taking the low, slow approach by teasing apart what's behind and underneath, um, the behavior that's on the outside. Um, and that, that approach that you practice meets everybody where they are and honors their diversity. Yes, that is perfectly, perfectly put. I could, I could not agree more. That's wonderful. Well, to wrap up, I always ask the same question. So um, we have a really high value on curiosity here at STAR. Um, we recognize that our thinking needs to evolve as the science evolves. And to do that, we try to stay humble and follow the science to find out what we're learning. Um, to do that, sometimes we have to change our minds about something. So I was wondering if you could think of an example of something maybe you once believed that your thinking has evolved in or that you've changed your mind about. That is such a wonderful question. And I, I mean, I think I could speak all day um, about this. I think, you know, as a parent, when your child has any sort of diagnosis, you feel there's just one road to take. You know, so for example, my child has an ear infection, we're going to get treatment and we'll be better, but it's really not a one road approach or children are not, um, they're so multidimensional. And I think what I have learned is it is so important to look at them, um, from all aspects and take that bottom up approach and not just focus on the behavior. And it's so easy for providers and parents to focus on the behavior without saying why. And so I've learned the importance of why and the importance of looking at the child, um, my own children and all the children I treat and the children in my yoga classes as more of a holistic um, sensory lens and how we can approach them um, through different avenues, through different roads. Don't just take one road, take many, many roads. And I can't urge parents enough to really, you know, tap into your own sensory self. And I think it will help them so much to understand their children, um, as well too. I love that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for um, the work that you do. Thank you for serving on our board. Absolutely. Thank you for the work that you do as a family practitioner and for being such a beautiful advocate for sensory health and wellness in, um, the, the clients and patients that you serve. So, and your own family. Yes. <laughs> Thank family. you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The Star Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's S-E-N. S-O-R-Y-H-E-A-L-T-H dot org. There, you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. 
This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the Star Institute. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave us a review, subscribe to this podcast, and share this episode with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.